Okay, so this week we're going to be talking about Sola Scriptura, but Stephanie had some good questions last week, and I wanted to kind of back up and look at them. So she was asking about translation. How do we translate the Bible? How is that done? And there's kind of a spectrum that you you go from. Uh, word for word is where you look at the Greek word and you translate it, and then you try to rearrange it and put it into a sentence. So each word gets translated, and then you make it work. And so the ones that are more word for word are down here, King James, New American Standard, that kind of thing. The middle here represents something called thought for thought. And so what you would do is you'd read that section in Greek, that sentence or that paragraph in Greek, and then say, okay, what are they saying in English? So you're not going necessarily word for word. You're taking the whole paragraph and saying, how do I translate that or the whole sentence and translate that into English? So that's more like the CSB and the New International Version. And then way over here is something where it's a paraphrase, where you would read it and then you would just say, what's it trying to say today? How, how could I explain it to somebody today? And so it's not even worried about word for word or necessarily the thoughts in order. It's trying to get the bigger, bigger picture. So here's an example. Let me, let me give you an example of what that looks like. This is Colossians 2.9. And we're going to look at it literally. So this is the Greek up here. Hote en auto. For, hote is for en him. For in him, this is dwells, katoi kai, keto, I can never pronounce these. I didn't have to learn to pronounce them, I just had to learn to read them. <laughs> Panto pleroma te theotote tetos summa So what it says is, for in him dwells all the fullness, the deity bodily. That would be a word for word, rough translation. If we were to put that in there, you would know what that means. You wouldn't have a hard time figuring that out. It's not really good English, but you could get there, right? So the King James tries to do that. It tries to take it word for word and just put it in as best as it can. So the King James says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So deity they translate as Godhead. But everything else is pretty much word for word in that sentence. The CSB and the NIV are going thought for thought. So they're not so worried about the exact words that are in there, they're trying to capture the idea of it. So the Christian standard says, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. It doesn't have the word Christ in there. Um, it doesn't have the word nature. Um, and it's out of order. It's in a slightly different order. But it's still getting the idea across, right? It's just a little bit easier to read. Or the NIV, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So you, you get the idea. They're, they're trying to wrestle with how do we render that in readable English. And then the J.B. Phillips edition is a paraphrase. So he's not even worried about trying to capture word for word. So he says, yes, in him, oh, yes, it is, in, yes, yet it is in him that God gives a full and complete expression of himself within the physical limits that he set for himself in Christ. So it's, it's getting the idea, right? So the fullness of the fullness here, a full and complete, the full deity or uh, deity dwells in him is an expression of himself. So they're, they're going a little bit further afield, but they're trying to capture that idea. So this is how you wrestle with doing translations is how close do you get to the original? Okay. Does it have Christ in italics? Yeah. 
Yeah, so from the context, you can tell Christ is, him is referring to Jesus. It's referring to Christ. So they, they picked that up. Um, Yeah, for in him all the fullness. Actually, that's a really good one for the NIV. The, the benefit of doing this kind of stuff is it makes it readable. So people can read it and they can understand it. The difficulty is there are some places where something is said and it could mean this or it could mean that. And in the like an ESV or King James or something will represent it that way. And it's confusing and it's like, wait, what does that mean? Whereas you get down into these and they decide what it means and they translate it that way and that's what they print. So where you could read it slightly different, you're, you're being obscured from seeing it. So I prefer more of a word for word. That's why I like the ESV, because I think it does a good job. King James Version, um, dwelleth, uh, just not a word we use. Um, New American Standard, they kept the these and thous when referring to God. And I think it's a little clunky, but I used the NAS for a long time. Um, I think ESV kind of reaches a good balance there. And it leaves some of the stuff hard to understand where it's difficult and it could be taken one or two ways. Um, I went looking through my notes from Jonah because there were a couple of places in Jonah where it was like the way it's worded, it could go either direction. But the New Living Standard or New Living Translation wiped it out. There's only one way to read it. And I found that really frustrating. But I couldn't find my notes. I couldn't find which, uh, which verse that was. So this is what we're doing with translation. Um, you don't take word for word necessarily and then just express it because um, hoti can mean for, but it can mean because of. Um, it can have a couple of different meanings. So when you come to it, you've got to look at how is it being used in the sentence. There's something called the lexical domain, which is for the word hoti, what are the words in English that would capture the idea of it? And there might be five or six. Um, but you have to select one that fits with the context of the sentence. So it's not just, you know, replace this Greek word with this English word and you've got it. You've got to make some decisions there. So it's, everybody's making those kind of decisions. So I found a, um, a couple of articles by this guy. I don't think he's a believer, but he was saying how the um, English translation of the Bible distorts what the original version said. And I went, no, it doesn't. <laughs> So he, one of his examples was John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And his complaint was the word so. Um, I don't remember what the word in Greek was right off the top of my head, but when we hear for God so loved the world, he loved the world so much. He so loved the world. That's not what the Greek says. What the Greek says is for, so, or thus, God loved the world. So what it could be translated is is not, God so loved the world, but God loved the world this way. And then the other thing he had a problem with was the word for word, which is cosmos, cosmos, where we get that word for. He said that doesn't mean human endeavor. It means the created order. I'm like, okay, but does that exclude human endeavor? Does that exclude fallen humanity from it? God so loved the world, the holy world, the cosmos. Yes, he did, that he gave his only begotten son. And so... Jesus' death and resurrection affects everything. And his example was the trees. But yes, it affects the trees because Colossians 1.19 says that God is reconciling all things to himself through the blood of the cross, things whether on heaven or on earth. So Jesus' death affects the trees. Somehow, I don't know how. But go, keep going with John 3.16. This, this is the way that God loved the cosmos. 
the whole created order, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, trees don't believe in him. Trees are not a who. So immediately the sentence gives the context. I'm like, I don't think we've really ruined that, that verse. I, I think he's making more of it than is necessary. But he gets him speaking gigs and he can write it Politico and places like that. So it pays. But, yes, sir. How about Romans with Paul says all creation is wrong? Yeah. Yep. And, and what is it waiting for? It's waiting for the revelation of us as adopted sons. So it's. Yeah, well, it's. Yeah, his his return will have a profound effect. Yeah, and and according to my eschatology, when he returns, that curse is lifted. The, the earth isn't made new, but the curse is lifted. And and so yeah, all creation is groaning, waiting for that moment. So anyway, um, we're talking about sola scriptura, the Bible as the authority. And so here's how our statement of faith says it. We read this last week. It's good to review it. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it's to be believed in all it teaches, obeyed in all it requires, and trusted in all it promises. I think it's a really great statement. What we're going to look at is ultimate authority. That's what we're going to talk about today when we talk about Sola Scriptura. So Sola Scriptura, here's a working definition, just an idea. We can kind of work through this a little bit. Scripture is the only inerrant rule of faith and practice. Okay, so that means that the Bible is the only rule we go to when we want to understand what we're supposed to believe and how we're supposed to live. Um, Roman Catholicism says, yeah, sure. Roman Catholicism says it's scripture and tradition. So tradition, church tradition has the same authority as scripture. And when they say scripture, what they mean is the way that we've decided to interpret it. So they don't believe in sola scriptura. They believe in the scriptures as authoritative word of God. They acknowledge that, but they have the authority to interpret it correctly and Tradition can tell us other things. So why do they believe that Mary was perpetually virgin when the Bible says Jesus' brothers and sisters came to get him? Because tradition says she was perpetually virgin. So we're going to tell you how to interpret the Bible. When it says brothers and sisters, it means cousins. That's what it means. So don't argue with us because we have the authority to tell you that. Remember the uh, last week, the cycle of uh, the canon? The church establishes the canon. The canon establishes the authority. The authority establishes the church, which established the canon, which, you know, yeah, it's a similar kind of thing. So Protestants come along and say, nope, um, only what the Bible says is, is what's authoritative for us. So when Rome told Martin Luther, you have to recant the things that you've taught on uh, justification, Luther said, unless it can be proved to me from Scripture or by reason, I cannot recant. It's neither safe nor wise to go against conscience. So he said, my ultimate authority is what the Bible says. You've said, you have told us that the just will live by faith means that if you want to be justified, you have to believe and do these good works. And that's not what the Bible taught. So Luther got in a lot of trouble because he said, nope, I'm going with the scripture. 
There's another nuance to this, and this is not quite as big, but you'll hear it occasionally. You've got to be, be aware of this. There is a difference between the sentence, Scripture is the only inerrant rule of faith and practice, and the sentence, Scripture is only inerrant on rules of faith and practice. Catch the difference? It's the only inerrant rule versus it's only inerrant on these rules. So there are people who believe, and they, they would call themselves evangelicals, that the scripture is only inerrant on faith and practice, not history. So do you remember I was talking about my, my uh, Hebrew professor who said Moses didn't exist? He would agree with the second part. The scriptures aren't inerrant on history. They get, they get things wrong. Um, it gets history incorrect, and so we don't have to follow that, but we do have to follow rules of faith. And so why does Jesus exist if Moses didn't? Because Jesus is principled to our faith, and we have to believe that. So that's, that's not sola scriptura. <laughs> that's moving the scriptures out of the role of authority and bringing in historical discoveries. So I haven't turned a spade over in Egypt and found something with Moses' name on it, therefore Moses must not exist though he's all over the scripture. But it's, just, it's, it's really subtle. It's very uh, a, a very subtle difference there. Um, the other thing that kind of comes out of this sola scriptura is the scriptures can legitimately command our consciences. They can say this, the Bible can tell us that um, murder is wrong. And so even if you enjoy murder, if you think murder is a great thing, the scriptures say it's wrong, therefore you must believe that it's wrong because the scriptures tell us it is. Um, so that's, that's what we're talking about, the only inerrant rule uh, for faith and practice. Now, the scriptures have that authority. Now, when it comes to other people like Trinity's elders, the elders here in this church, we have a certain amount of authority. But our authority is based on what the Bible tells us. So we can't command you you all have to wear red socks on Tuesdays. And, and it's a matter of conscience, and if you don't, we're going we're gonna to discipline you on that. We can't say that because there's nothing in the Bible that says, thou must wear red socks on Tuesdays. It just isn't there. So even, even, the script, even the elders and the authority within the church is bound by what the scriptures say. And that's where sometimes, unfortunately, in churches that get into problems, that's where it can come up is the elders say, this is what we believe this means. And somebody else in the congregation says, no, it's not. And now it's not an argument over is the Bible inerrant. It's over a matter of interpretation. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time tonight is, is the issue of interpretation. And how do we do that? Um, anything else on that before we keep going? I feel like I'm rushing. I've had too much coffee and a couple of sweets. So I'm a little hyper. A little cyper. Okay, there's also an issue um, kind of on the other, ha other side of this, you know, not it's only inerrant when it speaks about rules of faith and practice. Uh, the other way to go is something called solo scriptura, or I've heard it called nuda scriptura, which is the Bible is the only source of knowledge and wisdom. There's, you can't get it anywhere else. Um, the Bible doesn't talk about every aspect of human life. I was talking with somebody in the hallway yesterday. They were asking about this. And how do you make decisions about, you know, um, sexual ethics in the United States and politics and all of that? And I'm like, some of that stuff the Bible doesn't speak to. When it comes to, like, politics or something, there's a huge gray area there. 
So what I said is I believe the New Testament is more a book of wisdom than it is of laws. So it's teaching you how do you think? How do you consider these things? How do you process this? This is how you think this way. And now go out and live that way. And it is, So it doesn't address every single thing. Um, we can gain sure knowledge of things that are outside the Bible. Um, Sola or Nuda Scriptura would say you can't. If it doesn't say it in the Bible, it's not true. Um, so according to our statement of faith, those other things that we learn are subject to the Bible. But what if the Bible doesn't talk about it? So, for example, uh, the Bible doesn't talk specifically about nuclear weapons. It's just not there. Does the Bible have anything to say about nuclear warfare? Does it have anything to say about how we should prosecute a war? Um, does it give us any sorts of information on is it just or right to use a nuclear weapon? Or is there a place when it might be right to use a nuclear weapon? Does it talk about warfare? Does it talk about how human beings should interact and what the role of government is? So you see, we can go to some of these things and begin to extrapolate. So Augustine talked about a just war theory. Um, it's, some people believe that the Bible makes us pacifists. We can never engage in war. And Augustine said, no, there is a place where war is just and can be executed in a just way. Um, it would be merciful to go to war with this country because of what they're doing or what they're trying to do. So um, there can be a place for that. And so I think we can extrapolate and kind of wrestle through that with a question of nuclear weapons. When should we use nuclear weapons? Was it okay that we bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki? It certainly wasn't pretty, but that, that's a question. That's, that's a difficult question to ask. Um, So that's, that's the idea that the Bible, when it speaks, it speaks authoritatively, but it doesn't speak about everything. There's no biblical doctrine of magnetism. It just isn't there. Um, so kind of hinted at this a little bit, uh, the issue of inference and interpretation now. So we all agree this is the Bible. This is what the Bible says. Um, this is true. Um, okay, good. That's where I was going next. Good. Uh, so we all agree this is what the Bible says. We we uh, we all agree on sola scriptura that the Bible is inerrant and in all that it says and, and um, it says and it reveals about uh, everything and it's the only authoritative rule for faith and practice. Now, how do you interpret it? How do we understand it? So here's a prime example. Uh, this is one I like to look at. Colossians 2:11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What's that mean? How do we know what that means? Um, there are some people who would say the circumcision of Christ is his death on a cross. He was crucified. That was the removal of the flesh as he, his uh, spirit was separated from his body. And so we were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Christ, by Christ's death for us. That's, that's one way to read it. Um, some say that the circumcision of Christ is the circumcision Christ performs. So of can be either it done to him or about him. He does it. The, the problem with that translation. 
So the circumcision of Christ is the circumcision that he performs on us or one that is done in his name. And that would be talking about maybe heart circumcision, re regeneration, something like that. Um, so how do you tell? How do you know which one it is? I wrote an exegetical, exegetical paper on this, by the way, so <laughs> I know what it means. <laughs> Here's why, and what does it matter? Here's why it matters. The very next verse. Having been buried, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The second part of this verse, because it's a verse break there, but it's the same sentence. Some people read this and go, circumcision of Christ is baptism. So if circumcision is the, the template for baptism, then we must baptize our babies because babies eight days old were circumcised in the Old Covenant. And so they use this as a proof text for infant baptism. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> One of the definitions I'm reading in the church is the feast, the feast of the circumcision of Jesus, January 1st. Yeah. What does that mean? So in more liturgical churches, more high church like Anglican, Episcopalian, Roman Catholic, they set feast days where we're going to remember significant events. And so when Jesus was eight days old, he was brought to the temple to be circumcised, and that's when they name him, and he runs into uh, Anna and um, the other prophet. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Simeon. And, and so that was a biblical event. So they have a, a feast day to remember that. So that's what they mean by the feast of the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision itself is the removal of the foreskin. And so that was practiced in the Middle East. Uh, the Egyptians did it, but they did it on like 14-year-old boys. That's fighting words as far as I'm concerned. You can do it with a baby. They can't fight back. Um, but God came along and he took that and he said, no, it's going to be a symbol of my covenant with Abraham. And so he took an existing symbol and said, now it's mine. And, and you do this to your children. So when we get here and we hear circumcision, are we talking about the removal of flesh? It's done without hands. So that's why it becomes a real difficult issue is we can agree, my, my Presbyterian brothers and sisters and I agree, this is the inspired word of God. This is an accurate translation of the inspired word of God. Where we disagree is what is circumcision of Christ. So we could both appeal to Sola Scriptura and still come up with different answers. Because it goes, circumcision having been buried with him. Circumcision is replaced by baptism. Therefore, you have to... Uh, baptize your infants. I forget how they get with, where they get that that next phrase means it's replaced by Well, because Lisa, it's obvious. If only you, uh, if only you would understand. I mean, it's so simple. But you Baptists, you just don't get it. Gosh. Let me try to explain it simply for you. This is the circumcision of Christ. It's circumcision. You were circumcised. How? Having been baptized. So you are circumcised having been baptized. Your baptism is your circumcision. It replaces the old covenant symbol of circumcision is now replaced with the new covenant symbol of baptism. Why don't we replace it with being 
Because it doesn't say you were buried. It says you were buried with him in baptism. So obviously, since you were buried with him in baptism, you should sprinkle water on top of people. I don't. Why is this difficult? No, no, it's just sprinkling. It's just, you can't do that to a child. You just pour a little bit on their head. They, they feel that this is justification for saying circumcision replaces baptism as a sign and seal of the new covenant. Circumcision, uh, baptism replaces circumcision, yeah, as a sign and seal of the new covenant. Because I guess it takes having been uh, because you... You, you were circumcised. You have been baptized. They're both past tense. So they're, they're linking these two events together. Or like, okay, you were circumcised by being buried. Yeah. You were circumcised. How? Well, having been buried with him in baptism. That's how. Yeah. So that's why you should all baptize your babies. Would you like me to explain why you shouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> Drowning your infants is largely frowned on in the Bible. I mean, Pharaoh tried it, and you know. Yeah, it's it's kind of fleshing it out. It's kind of filling it out. It's explaining it. It's a bad joke. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> you would have to look at the the um, the cases of the words. Uh, there's a genitive and a um, um, dative and those kind of things and the way they stack them up and if they put in definite article in and the way they put them together, you'd kind of see where they link up, um, male and female, uh, masculine, feminine, neuter nouns and, and adjectives and stuff. So there's a way to do it. There's really not much translation issue here. It's pretty straightforward. So here, now that I've said you have to go baptize your babies, let me tell you why you don't. Um, if you can baptize without hands, go for it. There's <laughs> elbows on a baby. You're going to drop them. So that's that's where I think the big clue is, is you were circumcised with the circumcision without hands. In other words, you, you didn't get physically circumcised. Something else happened. It's the putting off of the body of the sarks, the flesh. And in Paul's language, sarks or flesh is often symbolic of the um, sinful nature. And so whatever that was, it is called the circumcision of Christ. Going back and looking at what kind of things would this mean, I think what it's pointing to is here is you were regenerated. Your heart was made new by the circumcision of Christ. So since you have been made new, since your heart has been made new, since you've been regenerated, since you believe in Christ, you've been you were buried with him in baptism, which means you go under the water, not you get sprinkled. <laughs> I just I don't get that. Bapt Baptizo means immersion. That's what the word originally meant. Um, so you were buried with him in, in that. So I appeal to this and go, nope, sign and seal of the new covenant is not uh, baptism. It's circumcision. 
It, it is exactly what it was in the Old Covenant. But in the Old Covenant, God kept saying, circumcise your heart, circumcise your heart, circumcise your heart. In the New Covenant, he goes, I'm going to circumcise your heart. So you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. But try arguing with a pedo-baptist about that. <laughs> you just keep going around and around the same thing. But, but baptism is a sign and symbol of the New Covenant. It's not. Nowhere in the Bible is it called the sign and seal of the New Covenant. The Holy Spirit is the sign and seal of the New Covenant. That's the only thing that's called that. Yeah, but baptism is. <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> huh? Oh, but he says this baptism now saves you. Period. End of discussion. There's nothing else that comes after that. But they are not baptized so either. No, the pedo baptists are, the Lutherans are, though. And so Lutherans will go, but it says right there, very clearly, Tim, oh, you poor Baptist. If only you understood. Read your Bible. It says this baptism now saves you. And I go, and then the very next words are corresponding to this. Corresponding to what? There's more to it than that. So this is the problem is we can all agree on the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture and still come up with big disagreements and stuff that matters. We're not a pedo baptist church. If, if somebody comes to me and says, please baptize my baby, I can't in good conscience do that. It, it matters. So that's where it gets a little sticky. Um, yeah, so... Um, any else? Anything else on that? Any other, like... Verses that you've run into like that or anything? Yeah, take them literally, yeah. yeah. And then now bring them down and then he talked about different translations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so when you get to the word sarks, it literally in English is flesh. That's a proper translation of it. But you have to look at what does Paul mean by the flesh. Um, Jesus was crucified in the flesh, which meant his physical body, not his sinful nature. He didn't have a sinful nature, but you look elsewhere. And so the problem is when, when you try to get up code words that are always mean the same thing all the way through Scripture. My favorite one is yeast. Yeast obviously means sin everywhere in Scripture. Yeah, except Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God is like a little bit of leek yeast that a woman puts in a lump of dough. That won't work. That just it doesn't fit. So don't look for those, you know, keywords that work everywhere. Yeah, there's also a thing we, that we the Christians practice. Scripture, scriptures interpret scriptures a lot of times, not all. Yeah, you have to look broader than just my, my proof text. I've got a verse that says what um, baptism now saves you. I don't want to talk about baptism anymore beyond that because that's what I mean. Like, okay, but there's a whole bunch of other things that talk about baptism. And the thief on the cross, they didn't haul him down and baptize him and put him back up on the cross. And yet Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, that was before. <laughs> now you're just going to start finding these qualifications. It's maddening. Yeah, yeah, you know, while he was mocking Jesus, maybe they threw water at him. Because he only had to sprinkle, right? So so where I want to go next is the relationship between what we call general revelation. We talked about last week, the world around us, our conscience, that kind of stuff, and special revelation. 
Um, how do they fit together? Do they fit together? Are they saying the same thing? One of the coolest questions I remember hearing was R.C. Sproul said, can general revelation and special ever revelation ever disagree? So could the created order say something different than what the Bible says? Yes. No. No. Because <laughs> God wrote them both, right? Um, I, guess, I guess you know what I think is how we're interpreting. Yeah, it. that's exactly it. I was, was going to say human nature. We're sinful and we're broken, so we're going to screw one or both of them up. So yeah. So when there's a re when there's a, dis uh, a disagreement between general and special revelation, it's usually us that got it wrong. Is the issue. Um, Herman Herman Bavink was a, um, a theologian. You, you read Bavink, right? Um, he said, without general revelation, special revelation loses its connectedness with the whole cosmic existence and life. So without looking at the world, without general revelation. Special revelation, the Bible loses its connectedness with the whole cosmic existence in life. In other words, we need general revelation because that's where scripture exists in. This is where it, it meets us where we live. Um, so I like the way the children's catechism says this. Where does God reveal himself? In his word and in nature. Special revelation, general revelation. What does God reveal in nature? His character, law, and wrath. What more is revealed in his word? God's mercy toward his people. Where is God's word today? The Bible is God's word. I think that's really just a beautiful way to sum up the relationship between general and special revelation. So remember this chart from a couple weeks ago, last week? Uh, infallible, inerrant, fallible, errant. I add another column over here. So when it comes to God's inerrant word, it's up here. Right? It can't be wrong. This is where we live. We can be errant or inerrant. We can be right or wrong, and that's where our interpretation lives. And down here, if you're errant, well, there be dragons. That's where you get into heresies. So Lisa's having a discussion with somebody who says, when you die, you fall asleep. And you don't wake up until it, the resurrection. So you have no conscious existence after you die. That's what the Bible says. It says so-and-so fell asleep. Stephen was stoned and he fell asleep, right? So he is not experiencing anything right now. He's, he's in soul slumber. Yeah, except <laughs> um, the souls of the righteous are beneath the throne calling out, How long, O Lord? Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham who were talking with the rich man who was in Hades suffering. They don't sound like they're asleep to me. So... This is where we get into the errant understandings. That's, that's where the dragons live. Um, one, here's a, a very important example before I get into my heresy of um, how general and special revelation fit together. Okay, so here's what the Bible says. It says it four times. The earth shall not be moved. First Chronicles 16, Psalm 93, Psalm 96, and then in Psalm 104, something very similar. He set the earth on its foundations, and it shall never be moved. Clearly, the Bible says the earth doesn't move. Right? We have four verses that say the earth doesn't move. 
Therefore, the earth doesn't move. It is the center of the universe and everything swings around it because it can't move. That's what the Bible says. And so when the church came across what they call Aristotelian cosmology, which is a big mouth for, mouthful for how, how Aristotle understood the universe, this is what it looked like for Aristotle. Here's the earth. It can't be moved. It sits in the center. It's surrounded by these crystal spheres, these crystal orbs that surround the, the earth. And sitting on them are the moon, Venus, the sun, and Mars. And then the furthest one out is where the stars live. And so the earth sits in the middle, and these crystal spheres, they swing around, uh, around the earth. And they're perfectly uh, uh, spherical. They're nice round shapes. And so uh, if you ever, whatever, uh, what hymn is that it talks about the music of the sphere, the, the music of the spheres. It's talking about these spheres moving around. That's Aristotelian cosmology. And so the church said, this is what the Bible is saying. So Aristotle got it right. The earth cannot be moved. Huh. Sorry. Yeah. I heard that one. That's an interesting one. So this is what our Bible teaches us, right? The problem is when you watch Mercury, for example, Mercury does this across the sky. This is called retrograde. It's moving forward. It moves back. It moves forward again. So what about that crystal sphere, Bubba? <laughs> Your crystal sphere is broken. If you look at it from a geocentric where Earth is in the center and it's not moving, this is what Mercury would have to do to do that retrograde. It'd have to swing in and around. That's, that's not round. It's got to be round because the roundness is, is perfection. So they came up with another idea. What if we have a round crystal sphere and on top of that is another one? And that's called an epicycle. So here's the sphere that, that um, let's call that Venus, for example. This is the sphere that Venus travels on, but it also is traveling like this. And so you'll see it apparently go backwards as it's traveling across the sky. And so here's, you can get that retrograde with all of the planets and problem solved, right? Not really, because the period of this, if it happens over here, then we should be able to look over here and say, oh, it's going to do it again, and it doesn't. So this is a problem. This was a huge problem for, uh, for the ancient um, um, astronomers. They didn't know how to solve it. Uh, Tycho Brahe started fiddling with some ideas. Um, uh, Galileo came up with one. Copernicus is the one that really broke it open, and he said the Earth can't be at the middle. The sun has to be. Because this way, when we catch up to and pass Mars, it appears to go into retrograde. That's the only way this will work. The problem with that is the Bible says the earth shall not be moved. Therefore, Galileo and Copernicus must be heretics because they're denying the authority of Scripture. How do we resolve that? Maybe we misunderstood First, First Chronicles and the Psalms when it said the earth shall not be moved. Maybe that's not what it meant. It wasn't speaking of moving through the cosmos. Maybe it was talking about the earth, as God has established the order here, will not be upset because God has established this order. I 
Poetic, yeah. Poetic, so it's abstract. Speaking in pictures. Yeah. Don't go looking for, in other words, what the Bible says is accurate. God has established the order of the earth. It will proceed as he has said, and it won't be shaken. It won't be upset. Not, it will never move throughout the cosmos. That wasn't even a question. Um, notice we still keep those four verses in our Bible, and we believe in heliocentric, or yeah, heliocentricity. We believe that the sun is at the middle of the, the um, solar system, and we don't have a problem with that. We allowed, the church was wise enough to allow general revelation to correct not special revelation, but our interpretation of special revelation. We got something wrong. And the church fought really hard for their uh, interpretation of it. It, it, They didn't roll over and go, oh, hey, Copernicus, thanks, dude. Appreciate it. Galileo, we're going to saint you. They called them heretics because they they had disagreed with Aristotle. And how dare you? didn't disagree with the Bible, but they disagreed with Aristotle. So now I'm going to confess to you my heresy. <clears throat> I, uh, I believe in an old earth. I think the universe is, as it appears, millions of years old. And um, I still also believe in the first chapters of Genesis. I don't disagree with them. Um, there's a gentleman named Ken Ham who does uh, creation science. And I what he says is, if you don't believe in a young earth, you don't believe in biblical inerrancy. I believe in biblical inerrancy, but I don't believe in a young earth. So where is it that Ken and I are disagreeing? Where are we seeing things different? What does Genesis 1 through 3 mean? Not, is Genesis 1 through 3 inspired? Is it accurate? Is it true? Hail and amen. We would both raise our hand and say, yes, absolutely. What Ken is saying is my interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3 can't be wrong. And so he, some of his arguments are a day means a day. Yom is the Hebrew word for day, and a day means a day, to which I would say, except in Genesis 2, 5, where it says, in the day he created the heavens and the earth. So even if you go with 24 hours, it was six days that he did it, not the day. So day can't be 24 hours. Well, when it's enumerated, the first day he did this, the second day he did this, that must be a 24-hour period. There's no example of it anywhere else in the Bible where it's not, except there is. Zechariah 14.7, it says, in that unique day. Literally in Hebrew, it's the exact same two words for first day that's used in Genesis 4 or 5 or whatever it is. So putting that qualifier on it doesn't modify that. Um, What was his next argument? Um, Oh, uh, it says in the, the sun rose and the sun set the first day. The sun rising and the sun setting is the marker of a day. A normal 24 hour period would have a sunrise and a sunset. Therefore, you must take it as a 24 hour period. Yeah, except the first three days, there was no sun to rise and set. So the normal definition of it was morning and it was evening would be the sun came up and the sun went down, but there was no sun up until that point. So we have to have special definitions for those 
So that still doesn't work. Um, the next argument was, well, nobody thought it was anything but a 24-hour period, six literal days, until the 18th century when Darwin came along. And now we're just trying to compromise and go along with uh, um, the scientists of the day. Yeah, except Augustine thought it was instantaneous and that God said, well, let me spread it out and explain it to you in six days. Just kind of what they said. The other thing was... Um, the early church fathers, there's a number of writings, a handful of them from about the second through about the fifth century, where they talk about when the world's going to end. And they look at the six days of creation, and then they look at Peter saying, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years. And so what they say is, the world's going to end in 6,000 years, because one day is a thousand years. So they're looking at the end, you could apply that same thing backwards and go, okay, so a day is now a thousand years. So you, you keep running into these little, like, but it just doesn't fit. To God. To God. Yeah. yeah. So um, so I don't have a problem looking at the universe and going, yeah, it, it looks like it's millions of years old. It's, it's old. It is. But when God decided that he was going to create Adam and Eve, he created them. And that's when we start counting history from is, you know, the earth could have sat idle for billions of years. Who cares? God doesn't exist in time. He might have done it that way for whatever reason. Um, but when Adam and Eve come along, there's special creation now. There's man and woman. Uh, there's a literal fall. Um, the sons of Adam and Eve are literally born in his image. And so, you know, you don't have to throw out biblical, biblical orthodoxy if you don't believe in six literal days. At the same time, I would say, and if you do believe in six literal days, that's wonderful. It's much easier to read it that way. It says six days. Why not just go with six days? Oh, the other one I remember now is, um, but the Sabbath is built on six days of creation, and then the seventh day you rest. And those Sabbath days are six Sabbath days. And so since the Sabbath is built that way in Exodus 20, then that must mean that the days were 24-hour periods. Yeah, but there's another place that talks about the Sabbath, and that's in Deuteronomy, and it says, Remember the days that you were in Egypt, and they were there for 400 years, not six 24-hour periods. So, you know, that's probably not going to fit either. So um, you, you get the idea. There's a wrestling back and forth here of how do we interpret these things? What are the best ways to understand them? Um, and we have to be careful for the sake of sola scriptura to say, here's the Bible. It is inerrant. It contains no errors. It is actually factual in everything it says. Here's my interpretation, which could be jacked. I could be wrong, and I'm not going to equate my interpretation with what the Bible says to be true. I could get it wrong, but I don't think I do. <laughs> so explain to me why I get it wrong, and, and let's wrestle through that. Um, so, yeah, the, the infant baptism thing is one of my favorite. Every once in a while I get a little froggy and jump into a debate with somebody about that because I just enjoy it so much. Um, the creation thing. Every once in a while, I'll hear, I'll hear Ken Ham or somebody like him talking on the on the, a podcast or something, and they just rattle off these facts so fast, and I get frustrated because I was like, "Slow down! Let's let's take a look at these. What are you saying here? And let's wrestle through and understand what that means." So, um, I don't want to say that my interpretation is equal to the authority of Scripture, and I don't want other people to think that it is too. Right? So. Um, if I say something wrong in a sermon, I'm not infallible. I don't have the pointy hat of the Pope. By the way, the Pope's not infallible either. So. Um. Yeah. It's going to be interesting if God, you know, God's answer is yes, you're both right. <laughs> or, or yes, you're both wrong. <laughs>
Augustine was right. He, I get it in an instant. I had to slow it down for you, for you people to understand. He wrote it. He wrote parts of the Bible in the next Yeah, you know, one of the explanations along those lines I've heard was um, there's a period we, we talk about the Big Bang. There's also something called the Big Inflation, where the bang happens and now the universe is expanding out. And so as the universe is expanding, time is being created as things are moving apart from each other, because that's how you measure time is, is how far things are from each other. So in God's view, he would do it in six days because it would take six to him if he was counting 24-hour periods for that universe to inflate. But inside that inflating universe, time has been dilated so tight at the beginning and then expanded out so fast that it could be experienced inside there as millions or billions of years. I thought, oh, that's an interesting approach. Why did God tell us from his perspective? <laughs> you know, why did he say, oh, as I'm looking at it, it looks like six days. That's not helpful to me. Um, maybe it, maybe it is. Maybe he did that, and that's why he said, "Let's base the Sabbath on that." It's hard to say. Um, let's argue about it. <laughs> let's wrestle through it. That's, that's the whole. That's the point. It's irrelevant, man's problem. Hmm. Which is what God really that's the thing he's addressing. All that stuff is fine. Dude, there's the bigger thing. You got a bigger issue than how long it took me to make the universe. Yeah, your, your problem is much bigger than that. Let's talk about that. We, let's hurry up and get to, to uh, chapter three. And uh, yeah, so um, so that that's the issue of script, sola scriptura is you have to make sure it's the scriptures alone that are authoritative, and not somebody's interpretation of them. So, you know, John Calvin could be wrong. He was wrong because he believed in infant baptism. So it's it's possible for him to be wrong. Yes. Within evangelicalism, within the, the broad family that we would call evangelical, which means people that believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, the, the clarity of Scripture, the need for a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, the need to be born again individually, the need to have the, the experience of being born again affect your lives, the, the, the people who fit in that camp, there's a lot of disagreement over how to read the Bible. So last week I said, what's the Bible about? And remember, I put those different things up. There are people who take those different approaches to reading the Bible. And so they, they would interpret the Bible as, what, is, what am I supposed to do? And that's, that's what they look at. I think the best way to do it is the way that it appears they do it in the New Testament, which is it's about Jesus. And so when you go to the Old Testament, you find Jesus, you find the problem that Jesus is addressing, and you say, that's how it affects my life. So there's wrestling there. There are some people who say Jesus is not in the Old Testament that the Old Testament was about Israel. Jesus didn't show up till the New Testament. You can't go back and find him back there unless he does it. He's the only one that can do that. So there's a whole bunch of different approaches to it. What you have to do and what we're called to do since we're each individually born again, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. He will call to mind Jesus' words. You, you have, an inerr you have a, a, um, a canon of Scripture because 
you hear the Spirit speaking through that Scripture. You also then have to go through and wrestle with what the Scripture says. And the only way to do that is by reading it a lot. Reading it often, going over it and over it. And especially when you get to a point, you're reading something, you go, oh, I know this story, and then you hit a verse and you go, I don't know what that means. Don't skip it. Because that usually is the key to understanding it, and what you got is wrong. So go back and look at it again. So... Um, that, that's the hard part is when you hit those verses and you go, I don't understand what that means. And, and then sit down with the Holy Spirit with his word and, and pray, Lord, open my eyes, help me understand and wrestle with it. You know, and if you don't agree with a brother or sister in Christ, go to it in, the, in the, the, the position of I could be wrong. But I think you're reading this incorrectly. I, th I think you've made a mistake by saying that um, the Sabbath is still on Saturday, that we have to worship on Saturday. I think that's wrong. And, and here's why. Here's what I'm wrestling with. Um, you do it in a, in a uh, spirit of care and, and you know, caution and, and humility. Um, and then if you don't agree, then you don't agree. But you wrestle through it yourself and figure out how do I do this. And um, the other, if I can just continue on this for a second. The other thing you have to do is you're not called, you're called to read the Bible individually. Sit down with your scripture and read through it. You're called to interpret it in community. Jesus called us all into his church. He has given some as pastors and elders and teachers and shepherds and prophets. And so he's given to the church a gift of a bunch of different people with different skills and different approaches to the scripture. And so you do it in community. Um, usually if you take your Bible, go up on a mountain and read it yourself, you're going to come down a heretic. You're going to get something wrong. We're not intended to be in isolation. We're intended to be in community. So let's wrestle through this. I read this today and I don't get it, you guys. What am I supposed to do with this? How do I interpret this? You go to the church and you wrestle through it. Part of that then is also listening to the voices of the past. The church has been wrestling with this for 2,000 years so far. There have been some people who have written some really good stuff on it. There have been some people who have written utter garbage on it. Let's, let's go through and hear what the church has said and wrestle through some of that too. So that's, it, it's confusing and it would be really nice if we had a pope who put on a pointy hat and said, Does this is what the Bible says. Just agree with me. But I don't think the Bible causes us to do that. I don't think that's that's what's supposed to happen. Well, I got me, yeah, that's by um, Second Peter, chapter one, and uh, mm. the whole end section, chapter one. You know, he speaks to this beautiful, followed cleverly by his tail. I I witnesses to, to Christ. Um, Hearing God speak uh, to them that He's well pleased to the Son, um, and we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. And you know what is so encouraging about that is what he starts talking about is look, I was on the mountain, I saw Jesus transfigured, I saw Moses and, and um, Elijah there. But we have something that's more sure than that. We have something that's more sure than some prophet coming along and saying, thus saith the Lord. We have the scriptures. And, and that's what's so encouraging is he's, he's assuring us you can do this. You can know this. You don't need to have that, that vision. You don't have to go up on the mountain with me. And see me and the departed saints show up. Mm -hmm. more, sure than that. more sure. That's what blows my mind is it's more sure than that. Yeah. So then he has, uh, but know that uh, first of all, that no prophecy 
copy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Yep. So, so if you keep that in mind, um, that really helps. Yeah, it's not one person's interpretation. So if I say something on a Sunday morning that that's not right, come and ask me. I can't be wrong. I have goofed up. I, I can think of a couple of times in sermons where I said something about that was wrong. Um, I remember in Sunday school I said something and I immediately backed up. I'm like, that was, that was garbage. Don't listen to me. Let's try that again. <laughs> so we, we can make mistakes. We just have to wrestle with it. It's, it's difficult. Oh, I thought you were waiting at me. <laughs> I thought you were going, I'm out of here. He's in, if he's not in here, man, I'm out of here. Church, church X down the street, they have a prophet. He'll tell me everything. I need. Yeah, so, so that's the, the so what question. What, what does it matter is the issue of soul scripture is we have sitting in our midst God's inerrant word speaking to us. We have a church that God has surrounded us with, with people who are given talents for te- preaching and teaching and understanding and, and gifts of uh, compassion and mercy and giving and service and all of these things. And so as we gather around the word together and we experience each other's gifts, it's a huge blessing to be able to wrestle through this together. So I know people who have tremendous gifts of service who go, I don't understand, just tell me what it means. And they're not even going to wrestle with it. They're not, I, just, I, I don't think like you. But tell me what to do and I'll go do it. And so 